are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Advent, an incredible season of promise and anticipation of what it is that lies ahead. It's probably one of my favorite times of the year. I don't know about the rest of you, but this is, this is kind of exciting stuff. I was raised in Germany. My parents were missionaries in the Church of the Nazarene, and uh, I was born in Germany. It was uh, that place where I just have my best memories of Advent and of Christmas as a little child. I don't know if you've ever been to Europe at that time of the year. We have the Christmas markets and and all the different things that would happen, and every Sunday leading up to uh, Christmas was Advent, and and, uh, I had to learn the little poem for church, Advent, Advent, ein Lichtlein brennt, erst eins, dann zwei, dann drei, dann vier, dann steht das Christkind. I still know it really well. You have those things you memorize too, don't you? Those things your parents made you say. So I loved it, you know. Advent, Advent, the little candles, we would light them and we would wait for the Christ child to be before the door. I remember um, St. Nicholas, he would come early in December and you'd put out your little shoes and you'd wait and you were hopeful that your shoes were filled with chocolates and candies and I love German chocolate and that was always exciting. And then on Christmas Eve, we always would go to church on Christmas Eve and when you went to church on Christmas Eve, it was when the Christ child was to come and to arrive and so we'd come and we'd worship and we'd worship with carols by candlelight and then you'd go back home to the house and then the gifts were under the tree because the Christ child came while you were at church that night and the gifts were all about Jesus and it was this amazing experience that we had and oh, oh how I love Christmas and oh how my husband didn't understand why I think you have to open your gifts on Christmas Eve. He thinks they need to be done on Christmas morning. It's one of those, you know, if you're young you're going to get married, it's one of those things you got to discuss and figure out, you know. Guess when we open gifts at our house? <laughs> Christmas Eve, you got it. Um, uh, <laughs> it's the way it works, Rick, right? You know, <laughs> give and take. Uh, but, you know, so these great memories that I have of, of Christmas as a child. Well, then, in 1992, the Church of the Nazarene asked us whether we would go and become missionaries in the Soviet Union. And we had never planned to move to the Soviet Union. We didn't think that was, you know, like on our radar screen. And so we ended up moving over there because we felt like God led us there. But you have to know, for this kid who loves Advent and who loves Christmas, moving to the Soviet Union in 1992 was a pretty tough thing. Christmas had been outlawed for 70 years. And that first year that we were there was the year that they finally allowed people to be able to celebrate Christmas again. And so trying to explore what that might look like, the place was rather dim. Um, There weren't any Christmas decorations up. I used to say that living in Russia in the wintertime was kind of like living in a deep freeze with a dim light bulb turned on. It's been snowing there every day this week. I always still look at the Moscow forecast. But... um, you know, there we were, and it, 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 in the wintertime, it sort of looks like a black and white movie because there just isn't any color. It's just concrete city, black and white snow. And you kind of go downtown, and, and we had heard that someone had donated a Christmas tree to the Russian government, and it was going to be there in Red Square, and that there was a manger scene. And so we thought, well, let's go down. At least we get some kind of flavor of Christmas. And I'll never forget, we entered Red Square, and there was one Christmas tree, and they had actually placed it on this circle in Red Square where they used to cut people's heads off, so that was exciting. And um, then 
just off in the corner they had a little tiny manger scene and they weren't too excited about the manger scene because manger scenes they considered too Catholic and they don't like freestanding statuary and so the Orthodox Church had put up a huge iconostasis that was supposed to be the manger scene and it was just this flat picture of icons. And so my heart was not all that excited. Oh, Christmas in the former Soviet Union. You see, in, in trying to get rid of Christ and trying to get rid of Christianity, they'd taken all of our traditions and the, they had secularized everything. So now instead of having Christmas for 70 years, they celebrated New Year's. And instead of having Christmas trees, we had Yolkas. And a Yolka was the Yule log. And it looked surprisingly kind of like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. And they had those for sale, but not until after Christmas. And everybody gave each other New Year's gifts and we celebrated the New Year's with fireworks at midnight and we talked about what might be happening in the New Year. The big celebration. It was interesting and it was a little bit hard for this gal that loved Christmas. But you know, this week I was reading a magazine, it's called Inside Higher Education, Inside Higher Ed, and I was reading an article online about some of the stuff that's happening in one of our universities in the United States. And you see, I was sitting here thinking, am I in some kind of a time warp? Because there were recommendations given about how we are to celebrate the holidays. It said, holiday parties and celebrations should celebrate and build upon workplace relationships and team morale with no emphasis on religion or culture. Ensure your party is not, your holiday party is not a Christmas party in disguise. And then the university went on to recommend this. And consider having a New Year's party. And include decor and food from multiple religions and cultures and use it as an opportunity to reinvigorate individuals for the New Year's goals and priorities. An official statement from one of our universities here in the United States but somehow I thought, how in the world has this happened? How in the world is it that suddenly America sounds just a little bit like the Soviet Union did? And is there any possibility that some of the things that, uh, that are happening in our world and our culture around us are kind of hitting us in a unique and interesting way? Because see, somehow we find ourselves living in a world that's changing, and one of the words that maybe we're using about that is the word called exile. The landscape of the world around us is changing more rapidly than most of us could ever have imagined. And some of you in here, you're young, and maybe you don't feel that rap rapidity of the change. But let me just tell you, the older you get, the more of us are going, whoa, hang on, things are going pretty fast here. And things are changing even in this country where no longer is Christianity favored in this nation. And if anything, really, Christianity is under attack. And so what do we do with that? Might I just suggest to you that uh, this isn't necessarily new. God's people have found themselves in this place before. God's people have found themselves in exile, in a period of time when they were taken away to Babylon. And let me just suggest to you that it was in that preparation of going off into exile, preparation of going into Babylon, that they were reminded of something called tabernacle. I want to take you this morning to the writings of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah, his writings, they point to that period of time, to the, to the exile, and we're not totally sure. There are different people who have theories about the writings of Isaiah and when they were, but 
there was either the threat of going into exile or possibly looking back on the exile and the hope of return, but it was a season when Isaiah wrote. It was a season of advent, a season of awaiting the advent of salvation. And so whether it's Isaiah and his period of time, I'd like to suggest that it is also our period of time in which we find ourselves today. I'd like for us to read this morning the scripture from Isaiah chapter 12, verses 2 through 6. If you have your Bibles, if you want to get them out, I think it'll also be on the screen. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 2 to 6. Could we please stand in honor of the reading of God's word? Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the nations. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy. O royal Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. The children of Israel, they were afraid. Anybody here ever been afraid? I'm guessing we've had our moments. We've had our times when we've been afraid. Um, And I was thinking as I was preparing for this, what are some times that I've really been afraid? And I, I was remembering an incident that happened a number of years ago. It was while we were living there in the former Soviet Union, and as we were there, we were working on opening up new countries where we might be able to bring the gospel and share about Jesus. Um, I was asked to travel down to Central Asia to what we call a creative access nation. There was a nonprofit organization that was working there, and I'm originally a nurse, and they had invited me to come down and talk about some medical care that we could do down there in that nation. So they, um, they asked if I would come. And to get down there, I was going to travel all by myself. This dates me. I had no cell phone. It was before cell phones or they were too expensive back then. And so I was going to get on a plane in Moscow at midnight and fly all night, the red eye, down into Central Asia and arrive in a nation where none of us had ever been before. I, um, it, it was always dangerous traveling in the former Soviet Union. The, uh, the airlines over there, I don't know if you've seen Soviet airplanes before, I used to say it really improved our prayer life. You know, you'd take off and there'd be bolts that would run all the way down the aisle. As you came back down, they'd run back down the other way. Sometimes people would get on with all kinds of livestock. We had interesting experiences. If you've been on the seats, they fold both ways. It's, that's fascinating too. And um, so getting on a, a Russian Tupolev airplane at midnight out of the Domodedovo airport, which was just about the worst airport you could imagine in the whole wide world, um, I... I hated it, and and they would treat us in in unique ways as foreigners. They would put us in one terminal, and then we were supposed to be separated from the Russian people, and then eventually it would be time for us to get on our plane, and they would make us walk across the tarmac in the darkness in the middle of the night and go up the back of the plane and get into these airplanes. Fascinating stuff. Then you tried hard not to look at the wheels of those planes because there wasn't a lot of rubber on them, but, you know... More prayer life happening in those planes. So I get on this plane. I'm going to fly all night. And there's a a lady next to me. A little bit through the night we talk. Mostly we sleep. 
get down to this country and when I get there, it takes me longer to get into the country because I'm an American. I have to go through passport control and customs and all of that. Finally, I get out and I get to pick up my luggage. The problem was that nobody had shown up to pick me up. So here I am in a foreign country. I don't have an address. I mean, you know, probably pretty silly, but I, I show up. I don't have anything. Somebody's supposed to be there to greet me. Nobody comes, and as I pick up my luggage, you have to know now, I really stick out. I'm the giant white lady with blonde hair. I stick out. They all notice me. And um, all the taxi drivers come, and they've just encircled around me. I guess they think they're going to help me, but they're pulling my bag away from me, and they're pulling my purse from me, and they're pulling on my coat, and I've got people just swarming me to the point where I was afraid. As a matter of fact, it's that moment of fear when I thought, I don't know what's going to happen to me because I could just disappear and nobody would ever hear from me ever again. And at that moment, I was praying and I looked across and there was a gentleman who'd been on the plane with me, a tall gentleman, looked like he was from Western Europe, and I thought, this is probably the craziest thing I've ever done, but I just marched across and I got right up in the face of this man and I said, hi, you have no idea who I am. These men are hanging on to me. Could you please just talk to me and act like you know me because I'm scared to death. <laughs> and he spoke English and he just kept looking at me and he talked to me until finally these people just left me alone. A couple minutes later, the woman who had been next to me in the plane came up to me and she said, did anybody come to pick you up? I said, no, nobody's come. She said, you're going to come home with me. And she just took me by the arm. She said, you're coming with me and led me out of this airport. And literally, I was going to get in a cab and go home with a complete stranger. It felt like the best thing to do at that moment. <laughs> Interestingly, just as I'm getting in the car with her, I heard somebody speaking English down down the road and it was the person who was to come to get me and I ended up making my connection and today we have an amazing Church of the Nazarene in that country it's pretty exciting what God is doing but you have to just know that it was at the moment that others stepped in to be my salvation that my fear disappeared it was that moment that that gentleman would talk to me that my fear began to melt it was when the other woman comes up and says you're coming home with me that the salvation had kind of arisen at that very moment. And the children of Israel, they had experienced fear, and yet they were supposed to remember the salvation. God had provided for their salvation when they had escaped from the Egyptians, remember? They, they were escaping, and, and God wiped out that entire army. He buried Pharaoh and his military in the Red Sea. And through all those years of wandering in the wilderness, God gave them food every single day. He took care of every need that they had. And have you read this? That even their clothes and their sandals never wore out for 40 years. Nothing wore out. God's people were to remember that event. And they were to remember that wandering in the wilderness and God's protection was his promise of salvation. And so annually they were supposed to have a feast or a, a celebration called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a reminder of God's salvation. And any time that word salvation was mentioned, as Isaiah brings it out in verse 2, surely God is my salvation. They were remembering their walking in the wilderness. They were remembering the tabernacles. And they, here he talks, I will trust and will not be afraid. God is my strength and my might. 
He has become my salvation. Automatically, they associated that with the Feast of Tabernacles. And so that they would not forget what God had done for them in the wilderness. During the Feast of Tabernacles, everybody was supposed to go outside and they were supposed to put up a tent, or they called it a booth, or a tabernacle. Basically, think Nazarene camp meeting. This is what they were supposed to do every year. Everybody, move out of your house and go move into a tent and remember that God took care of us while we wandered around in the wilderness. People would even build them up on the roofs of their houses. But the neat thing about it was this. You see, their houses, they, they had become self-sufficient. They, they had all the things of the world that they would need. And, and, and you begin to believe that you can take care of yourself. And then God says, move out of your house and go live in a tent for a week. And remember that when you needed it, I gave you food, I gave you water, and your clothing never wore out. I am your salvation. It was a reminder that they didn't need all the stuff. And it was a promise, a promise of tabernacle. And now, not only was it a memory of how God had cared for them while wandering in the wilderness, it was now a promise of God's salvation during exile. Salvation would come. They could still tabernacle with God. He would still provide for them as he did in the wilderness as they began to wander into this place of exile, into this place that seemed so unfamiliar to them. But as they would go off into exile, they had a choice. How were they going to respond to exile? They could either believe and trust in the promise of tabernacle or not, and they could choose to be faithful to God and trust in Him to take care of them or not. If we believe what people are saying, the changes that we're facing in this world today, that you and I, that we're walking into this place called exile into this place where maybe Christianity is not so favored, maybe into this place where the world is changing around us and it feels strangely unfamiliar, you and I, we can choose how we respond. Do we want to go believing in the tabernacle and the promise of tabernacle that we get? You know, some of the most famous young people that went off into exile were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those guys? And when they get over into exile... What do they do? Do they just say, wow, I'm sick and tired of this. I don't really like the fact that I've been stuck over here. No. What they say is, we're going to be faithful and we're going to serve God. And whether or not it made sense to the officials that they were living with, they said, you know, we want to eat certain foods. We want to take care of ourselves. We want to study hard. And God used those young men to be an incredible witness within their world. But we find evidence that that wasn't always the way that everybody dealt with being in exile. In Psalm 137, verse 1, we read this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now think about that. That's a pretty unpleasant experience. That's kind of like getting out somewhere and people saying, Come on, Christian, sing us some of your songs. Show us your stuff. And the people in Babylon said, the the God's people said, We're not going to do it. We're not going to perform for you all. They just kind of folded their arms. They took their harps and they hung them up on the willow tree and said, 
no way. We're not going to do that for you. Now, that's one way that we could choose to deal with exile, but I have a question for you. What would have happened if they had chosen not to hang up their harps? You see, in hanging up their harps, it wasn't just the fact that they refused to sing for the Babylonians. Their harps had to do with their worship of God. And so by hanging up their harps, they're refusing to engage in worship of God. And what would have happened if sitting by the rivers of Babylon, they had taken their harps and they would have played their music and they would have worshipped God? And the neighbors might just have listened in. Could it be that along the rivers of Babylon, they could have helped to bring a revival to the people that needed to hear it, to the people that were holding them in exile? You see... Who were they hurting by their attitudes? They were hurting themselves and the very witness that they could have had for God in their captivity. The promise of tabernacle for you and me, it's a reminder that God is going to provide for us and for our needs even if we are in exile or if we're wandering in a wilderness and when the world begins to look radically different, God stays the same. Isaiah 2 12 to again, surely God is my salvation. I will trust, I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. And in this season of Advent, this is the promise. The Lord God is our strength, He is our might, He's our salvation. He is the promise of tabernacle. So Isaiah continues sharing the promise with the people. In verse 3 he says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So, you know, why should he bring up water right here? Water is a pretty important feature in the lives of people in the Middle East, let me just tell you. It's hot there. There's a lot that you need to drink. I'll never forget a number of years ago while we were living in Russia, my husband decided that he would go on a spiritual retreat. He wanted to go, he wanted to get away, he wanted to pray, and he wanted to fast. And so someone had arranged for him to go out to a little retreat center um, with a number of other folks that happened to be Orthodox Christians, and he was just going to go to pray and fast. And so he gets out there, and, and he, um, he ends up in this place, and he's sharing a room with, he says, with the uh, monk from Minsk, and uh, they're hanging out together. And my husband realizes he forgot to take water with him. And over there, you can't drink the water. And so he's gone for two days, and he's taken nothing with him to drink. He ended up drinking a tiny bit of hot tea, but he said he began to realize after a day, you really can't go very long without having liquid of some kind. He said, I'll never forget how thirsty I was. He said, I've never been that thirsty in my whole life. By the time I got on the bus, I got back to the city, and we stopped at a, sub, at a metro station. He said, I went to a kiosk, and I bought a two-liter bottle of water, and I just stood there and chugged the water because I'd gone without water for so long. You see, you and I can fast. We can go without food, but we cannot go without water. If we don't have water, we will die. Water, it's that life-giving substance that you and I need every single day. And even if you and I are living in exile, God will provide for us every day. But only if we stay connected to Him. Because no matter how hard things get, we have to realize nothing can separate us from the love of God. The only thing that will separate us would be our attitude. 
And that can disconnect us from that which we need every single day. And let me just tell you, it's easy to take water for granted, isn't it? How many of you used some water this morning? Everybody, I would guess. All the way from maybe a cup of coffee to a shower to brushing our teeth. All of those things, we've all used water this morning. And how many of us really thought about where that water came from? Yesterday, I was reading the USA Today weekend edition, and uh, I was struck by the headline. Right there in the middle of it, it says, Our water is running out. Now, that's not a very inspiring headline either. But evidently, there's this large aquifer that runs underneath the Great Basin here in the U.S., um, under the Great Plains, and it's running out. Just 50 to 60 years ago, people were told, you can just put in a well, don't worry, take as much water as you want, there's an unlimited supply. And in the last 20 years, they've been having to double the depth of the wells to try and get enough water for us because our water is running out. We've been taking it for granted. We have enjoyed what we thought was an unlimited supply and we didn't think that we needed to pay attention to our own water. And let me just suggest to you that there's a possibility that maybe we've been taking for granted this that God provides for us, our spiritual sustenance. And maybe we thought we had an unlimited supply that was going to take care of us into the future day to day and now we wouldn't have any problems. But unless we stay connected to the source, unless we go deeper, you and I will not have that spiritual water that we need to take us through in the exile. The spiritual water, the promise of water, it was that which was to flow at Pentecost. It was the infilling of God's Holy Spirit That was what God wanted for his people. God's desire has always been that his people would be his holy people. That we would live within the promise of tabernacle, but we would also drink daily from his well, being filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. That was the promise. And then the people had to wait, and they waited, and they were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. And in verse 4, Isaiah gets excited. He says, And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the nations, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done graciously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout aloud and sing for joy, O royal Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And so that feast, that feast of tabernacles, the promise of salvation, comes to fulfillment in the baby Messiah who's born and laid in a manger. And later as the people of Jerusalem, they celebrate and they sing Hosanna. It's the language of salvation. It's all tied in together. Jesus comes to this earth with his perfected salvation. It's done. It's finished. When Jesus comes, we don't have to worry about it anymore. The work will be done in and through his life, and the promise will be fulfilled. Salvation for you and me, it's an invitation into a holy life, a transformational walk with our promised one. Well, in those early years over in the former Soviet Union, we were constantly telling people about Jesus for the first time. That's an interesting experience. My husband went to a Bible study on the north side of Moscow one night, and he was working through the Beatitudes with a group of people that wanted to know more about the Bible. At the end of the Bible study that night, they said, this is fascinating stuff, but they said, you know, you are the first Christian we've ever met, and we just have a question. Do you live like this? That's a little bit stunning. 
when you might be the first Christian someone has ever seen and they want to know, do you actually live by what the book says? Well, I want to just share with you an Advent story from Russia from 1994. It's not my story, but it's the story of two American short-term missionaries that came to Russia. And they were invited to come to an orphanage during the Christmas season. About a hundred children were in the orphanage, and the missionaries tell the following story in their own words. They said it was nearing the holiday season, time for the orphans to hear for the first time the traditional story of Christmas. And so we told them about Mary and about Joseph arriving in Bethlehem, finding no room in the inn. The couple went to the stable where the baby Jesus was born and placed in a manger. And throughout the story, the children and the orphanage staff, they sat in amazement as they listened. Some sat on the edges of their stools. They were trying to grasp every single word. Completing the story, we gave the children three little pieces of cardboard. They were supposed to make a crude manger. And each child was given a small paper square. It was cut from yellow napkins that these folks had brought with them. There wasn't any colored paper available in the city. And they were given the following instructions. The children were to tear the paper and carefully lay strips of manger in the straw. And small squares of flannel were used for the baby's blanket. And a doll-like baby was cut from tan felt that they had brought from the United States. So they were busy assembling their mangers. And the missionary walked among them just to kind of see how all this was coming together and if they needed any help. And all of a sudden, she said, I got to one table and here sat little Misha. He was maybe about six years old and he had finished his whole project and he was excited for me to see what he had made. And I looked at the little boy's manger and I was startled to see not one, but there were two babies that were in the manger. Quickly, I I called for a translator, and I I asked the lad, why were there two babies in the manger? Crossing his arms in front of him and looking at his completed manger project, Misha began to explain. He repeated the story very, very seriously. For such a young boy who had only heard the Christmas story once, he related the happenings accurately until he came to the part where Mary put baby Jesus in the manger. And then Misha just started to make up his own ending to the story. And this is what Misha said. And when Maria laid the baby in the manger, Jesus looked at me and asked me if I had a place to stay. I told him, I have no mama, and I have no papa, so I don't have any place to stay. Then Jesus told me that I could stay with him. But I told him I couldn't because I didn't have a gift to give him like everybody else did. But I wanted to stay with Jesus so much, so I thought about what I had that maybe I could use for him, for a gift. And I thought maybe if I kept him warm, that would be a good gift. So I asked Jesus, if if I keep you warm... Will that be a good enough gift? And Jesus told me, if you keep me warm, that will be the best gift anybody ever gave me. And so I got into the manger. And then Jesus looked at me, and he told me I could stay with him for always. And so little Misha, he finished his story. His eyes were full of tears that splashed out his little face. And Putting his hands over his face, his head dropped to the table and his shoulders shook as he sobbed and he sobbed. And the little orphan, you see, he had found someone who would not abandon him. Someone who would stay with him for always. 
Jesus promises in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. The promise of tabernacle. It's not just about remembering the past. It's an invitation to salvation, eternal salvation. Yes, we may find that we're living in a world that is changing. Yes, it may never be the same again. But we are still invited to find shelter and salvation in God's tabernacle. The new tabernacle, it's found in the manger. And this is the promise of the awaited one. And you and I, we are invited to climb into the manger and dwell forever with him, for he is our tabernacle and he is our salvation. This is the promise of Advent. I'd love to pray for you before we go. So if you'll bow your head with me, let's pray. Father, it feels like sometimes in this world that I live in. It feels a little bit like we're in exile. What is happening around us is not familiar. It's not common to us. It's not sometimes comfortable.
As a Christian, I feel challenged sometimes even to say that we celebrate Christmas by other people. And I kind of wonder what happened to this nation. And why so much changed so fast. And why have people been so intent on trying to take Christ out of this Christmas season? But Lord, I'm a person who lives by promise. And we are people of tabernacle. Remembering that you are the God who has watched over your people. And you have provided protection and provision and care. And so, Lord, we live in that hope today that you will always be with us even when our world is changing. And you will always protect us and provide for us. And all of this is fulfilled in the little baby born on Christmas Day. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.